All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and uh, continue. Yes, please. As we near the end of our journey to the New Testament, and uh, we may not finish up with our introduction to the book of Revelation today, we'll see. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you to you for your being ready to receive us and to guide us. Father, this is your word, so help us to handle it properly as we just now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started looking at the overview of the book of Revelation. And as I told you then, I'll remind you again now that what I'm trying to do, because the nature of a survey course is not try to give every answer to every possible question, but to give an overview of understanding. And we had a discussion on, well, when, when was the letter written? Because that has some implications as far as how to understand the message. Was it written during the 1960s under the control of Nero? Was it written in the 1980s, 90s under the control of the mission? 1990s? I'm sorry, the 1960s. <laughs> well, at least you pay attention. <laughs> We were all, we were just blind. Yeah. 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 Something new. 60s, sorry, under Nero, or 90s under Domitian, it, it has some impact on how we interpret the book. We punted on the final question to that end, final answer to that question, because you had good reasons for each decade, though I opt for the 90s in my own personal understanding of the book rolls. But Paul, uh, John, he's writing, he's writing from the island of Patmos, and he can look across body of water there and see the cities uh, that he'd be writing to as he writes the seven letters. And so we have basic organizational structure along the following, his introduction, chapter one, and then we have two full chapters that are letters to individual local churches. And then it breaks up into three larger sections with the term that starts out, come and see. Now, there are other ways that the book has been analyzed, and as you recall last week, one of the things I said is that whatever someone's school of interpretation of the book of Revelation, at some point they have to make a decision on what in Revelation was talking about what was going on in the first century, and what was talking about something that is yet to come. All those schools have to wrestle with that. They just have a different dividing line in the book of Revelation where they begin. Okay? So we're not talking about those that believe the Bible and those that don't. These are earnest men and women of God that have studied the Bible and that have these different schools of thought. But that's separated from what we look at when we talk about how do we understand Revelation 20 and the issue of the millennium. That is a different set of arguments that Christians have about the return of Jesus Christ in relationship to the white throne judgment, in relationship to what's going on in chapter 19 with the glorious return of the victorious warrior on a horse. Okay? But that all of us, however glorious we want to play up a millennium, and however glorious it may or may not be, need to move forward. Because our ultimate hope was chapters 21 and 22, where we all end up together in the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells, where earth and heaven, as it were, become one. And all of creation now is a temple, because we see that there's no temple, there's no light, because God is the light. And there's unhindered worship now between uh, the people and God. There's unhindered relationships between all people, and there's unhindered relationships between people and creation. And so we all end up in this awesome 
awesome, far beyond what we can think or imagine now, a place called the new heavens and the new earth, where there just are no issues or problems or troubles, just glorious, unending fellowship with the Lord and with His people and with His creation. Okay? So, if we end up in the new heavens and the new earth, and we can have our discussions about how we get there, and what's going to happen in particular things, and then we can say, you know what, brother, you might be right, and I might be wrong. But when we get, get together in that place, you know, Ain't gonna matter. <laughs> you know? Um, somebody <coughs> named Walter Martin last week, and I mentioned that Walter Martin was very instrumental in my own understanding of Scripture when I was a young believer. And at that time, he, he really was the Bible answer man. It was one of the very few Christian programs that were on that would actually answer questions of doctrine and Bible teaching. And so as I was working out in the garage, or as I was uh, exercise, uh, uh, working in the backyard, you might have... Dr. Walter Martin in my ear, it was only a half hour a day. How I long to have more. You know, now we're at an age of podcasts where if I want to, I can listen to someone all day. But he was good friends with Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. And they disagreed on the issue of the Lord's return, on the timing of the Lord's return. But they agreed on so many other things. Uh, Chuck Smith was of the opinion that there's a pre-tribulation rapture of the church and he would teach that at Calvary Chapel. Walter Mark was of the opinion that the church would go through the period of tribulation uh, and, and then the, the Lord would return at the end to uh, deal with all matters. And they would bicker back and forth, but like gentlemen. And he liked to tell the story about, Mark, about Chuck Smith. Chuck said, well, when the pre-tribulation rapture happens and I'm going up before you, I'm going to look back and say, I told you I was right. <laughs> he said, and if that happens, brother, I'm going to be yelling behind you. I'm so glad you were. <laughs> but it could be the other way as well. So uh, if, if it goes a different way, are we prepared to go through persecution? Are we prepared to go through tribulation? You know? In our statement of faith of the evangelical preacher, we say in time known only to God that Jesus Christ will return. And I'm happy to leave it there because in the counsel of God, He sees the beginning from the end perfectly and knows all things well. And we grasp at straws sometimes putting things together. And if 2,000 years of church history hasn't solved that problem, we may not be the ones who will. But we can have a charitable hand and say, look, our hope is the return of Jesus Christ. And however he does it, all of us are going to look and say, not bad, not bad. <laughs> the Lord does all things well. Yes. The statement of faith, though, that's just been reworked over the last three years. Isn't that correct? One word was changed. Yes. Uh, One word, yeah. But pretty significant word. It, yes, yes. Okay. So, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to get to. I've sat in this church for... 30 years, and I was taught yes. um, a particular view. Exactly. Yes. So it's very difficult, not not long, but difficult to sit here with it different. So I mentioned some organizations, someone asked a question about where can I get good information, good materials. Uh, I would recommend any of these organizations you're going to find very good teaching, Bible teaching, seminars, conferences, books, journals, all kind of stuff from Ligonier.org or from Crossway.com. Crossway, it might be more. It's a book publishing company and they publish very selective type of books they publish. And a very, very good resource. The GospelCoalition.org has just a plethora of materials available and if you find some Someone who speaks another language. Its website now is up in like 11 languages, something like that. 
Uh, it's actually an organization that I support because they're targeting French-speaking, Arabic-speaking, Chinese-speaking, Spanish-speaking world. And we spent a bunch of years in the French-speaking and Arabic-speaking world. And then DesiringGod.org, which is John Piper's uh, organization. Lots, everything's free on most of these sites. So if you're looking for a good Bible study, an answer to a Bible question, resources, if you start in any one of these, you're going to get lots of good resources to help you uh, improve in your knowledge of Scripture. Okay? So I just put that up just because an answer to your question, it's as I have met brothers from different points of view and have got to know them and their heart for the Lord and their love for evangelism and their desire for the glory of God, we have been able to really, in my own heart, really focus on what are those non-negotiable essentials that we'll die on the hill for and what are some of those things that we can let go. They'll have convictions, but we can let hold those a little looser. Okay. I think MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and their closeness yes. and difference in opinion is a, a good... That's an example of how to conduct and, and you know, a million billion years from now, when we're in the glorious presence of Christ, we're not going to have these discussions. No. <laughs> and it'll be very just a, a slight figment of our imagination that we even recall having them, I think. We'll just be so enamored with the glory of God and the beauty of eternal life. That, yeah. So, with that as... Preparation. If we look at the book of Revelation, there's different ways of dividing it. This is one that I find very intriguing, the come and see. Repetition of scripture is something worth looking at. And it seems like John has given some organization to the book. Um, but it wouldn't be the only way that it has been uh, divided. But then as we do in this course, we move on then. So for those visiting today, typically what we do is we look at, for any particular book, what's the historical context? Who is the author? Approximately when it was written. A basic organization of the book. And then, what are the main themes? So, from seminary, you would say a survey of New Testament. But here I call a journey through the New Testament. Okay? So that's what we're doing. And we've journeyed through over the past year plus uh, through the New Testament. We're finally in the final book. Um, last week, we talked about the two, the first two. What are the main themes? And how comforting it would have been to these suffering saints. Because at a minimum, some of the book of Revelation meant something to first century believers. Who are facing great persecution from the Roman emperor, from the Roman authorities. Uh, the, the, there was a cult uh, of the emperor. We had to pinch off some incense. He had to make some type of symbolic offering to the emperor. The Christians said, we're not going to do that. Um, so at a minimum, it had some encouragement to first century believers. And what's that encouragement? God's in control. Amen. Even in the wickedness that is unfolding, He's in control. Uh, in, both, in the book of Revelation, both of God the Father and God the Son are referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. So it's a defense of the deity of Christ. And, and what an encouragement that would be then that God's in control, the one who was and is and is to come. And if you're facing down the barrel, figuratively speaking, of the Roman soldiers, it's a really comforting thing to know that God is in control. And that even the martyrdom that's talked about in the book of Revelation, however you understand it, believers are killed. Okay? Whatever time of history we're talking about, believers are killed. And what is their aspiration? Is they're crying out, what, for Christ to be vindicated. And they're saying that God is just in his judgments. 
And that's something that we can all affirm, that we will all say God is just in His judgments and He is in control. Um, Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness, one who's in control in Revelation. The second major thing we looked at was the victory of the Lamb. And there are about 30 occurrences of the Lamb, as it were, Lamb language in the New Testament. Most of them in the book of Revelation, and most of them refer to Jesus. Okay? So this Lamb, who's a unique Lamb, is the Lamb that was slain. He conquered by being crucified. And as a result, they accomplished salvation for all those who came to save. And he will return as the warrior Lamb, as the the victorious lion. Um, <clears throat> he overcomes sin and death and the devil and the world and he is the only one through whom salvation can come. It's interesting. It's a lamb that conquers because he was slain. In that imagery of Revelation 5 it said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And I turned, John said, and he would expect to see a lion. And instead he sees a lamb standing in the middle of the throne of God. There's great symbolic truth there. Standing in the middle of the throne of God. Okay? So, as John is trying to put together in his finite mind what he's he seeing in this revelation, he's straining at human language. And as I said last week, he even violates some of the Greek grammar at times, inventing new words and violating some of the rules of grammar to create phrases to talk about what he's seeing. And we should, if we understand the book of Revelation, we should have some of that awe as we read through. If you read through who Jesus is as he is revealed in chapter 1, every one of those descriptive titles comes up again later in the book of Revelation. So it is the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Um, because this lamb has conquered, he's worthy to be worshipped. Right? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And I don't have uh, Handel's Messiah with me here this morning. But he has a great rendition of Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory, power, wisdom, might, and honor, wealth, and blessings. Don't be long to be part of that course. I'm just praising you. And we will be. And that's why we can do it in brief now as we sing the great hymns, as we learn new choruses and old, uh, talking about the victory of the Lamb. Okay? Then there's two types of worship. <coughs> two types of worship because we see in the book of Revelation everywhere Satan is the great counter So we have the pictures of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity in the book of Revelation and throughout. But we also have pictures of the false trinity, the beast and the, the false prophet and the dragon. Uh, we have the Bride of Christ that is contrasted with the Whore of Babylon. We have the risen Lamb, the resurrected Lamb, contrasted with this enemy who appeared as if he had risen from the dead. We have the seed that is the symbol of, of great wickedness all throughout the scriptures. The sea is, is this aboding, dark place of judgment and death. And worldly leaders come out of the sea. And then we get to Revelation 21, it says, and there's no longer any sea. There's no longer any abode of darkness and death and destruction. There's only life and light and uh, the river of life. 
And so these great contrasts. So what we see in the book of Revelation, these two types of worship is, if man will not worship God as he truly is, he will start to worship anything else. And we see that in the book of Revelation at many points where they bow down and worship the beast, where they bow down and worship the, the, the evil one, but they're not bowing down and worshiping the land. So where I'm at in your notes right now is on page 81. We're looking at the major themes of the book. And what we hope to do today is get through those and then start to talk about some of the main schools of interpretation, just so you have an understanding of what Christians have taught, how they've understood the book. I'm not saying you have to embrace any or all of those I'm saying be aware because you will have good evangelical commentaries that will present. Okay? There are numerous scenes in the book of Revelation where forces of evil are being worshipped by those who live on the earth. But we also have some of the most dramatic, heavenly scenes of worship found in the book of Revelation. Okay? That God has lifted up and His saints are worshiping Him. And we get the idea that there's ongoing spiritual struggle right, for the hearts and minds of men that's taking place. And it should encourage the people of God because God will win and He will be vindicated and He will bring great deliverance to His people. Then we have the, the justice of God's judgment. There's a lot of judgment scenes in the book of Revelation. I have to say, the Lord in His providence, as He worked in my life, uh, was a young, maybe I was a believer. It was during that time where I was really kind of searching uh, what was the truth. I think I shared part of that testimony before. But I met a guy on the tennis team whose name was Brian. And Brian was... He said he was a Christian, and he seemed to be this likable fellow, and he didn't lose his temper like I did. And, and so I talked to him, and he said, well, I'm a Christian. And he said, Jesus Christ is coming back soon, so what I want you to do is I want you to go home and read Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation. <laughs> Not a typical evangelism method that we recognize, right? <laughs> but I did. I read Matthew 24. Wars and rumors of wars, a nation will rise against nation, and earthquakes in third places. So I say, wow, 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 that could be today. And then I start reading the book of Revelation, and I read through it again, and I began to realize it's a serious issue. This God plays for keeps. He judges his people, and he carries it out. And I knew enough because I've been reading the scriptures. I knew enough to know that I was a sinner. I knew enough that I deserved hell. And I knew enough to know that that was my future. Because I didn't fully understand how to come to Christ. And so I had developed this very healthy fear of God and a healthy fear of death. And then I heard the gospel that I didn't have to go to hell. God had fired away people who repented to leave. And it was a message by Billy Graham on hell. And uh, I fell on my knees with tears flowing. I said, God has mercy on me, sinner. And felt the relief and the release of over a year of guilt and condemnation that I was struggling to find the truth. All that to say that while I wouldn't recommend the book of Revelation as a normal process for evangelism, it is still the Word of God. Amen. And all, it's all the Word of God. And you never know what God's going to use. Um, and He used it in my life just of the reality of sin, judgment, and God's righteousness. And you see that in the book of Revelation. I mean, they're very colorful terms, right? And then they, the people of God, what do they do? They praise God for His judges. 
We live in a world where we want to tame down God. Where we want it just to be, what? Loving, all-embracing, kind, gentle. Okay? And all we're really doing is making God our own imaginations. But God won't let himself be tamed like that. God is who God is. And he's... He's not particularly interested in negotiating with us, the kind of God he should be. Okay? And so all we need to do as his faithful servants is preach the word. Do you trust God enough to preach even the tough parts, even the difficult parts, even the judgments? Because God is being glorified in his judgments, and that comes clear. So imagine now. You're in the first century of Roman Empire. They want to force you to worship the emperor. Uh, Nero was referred to as the beast by most people in the Roman Empire. And you're being threatened with being put in jail, persecuted, stealing everything. They want you to commit idolatry. And you know that God is going to punish all you and all you believers. That's going to be good news to your ears, not bad. That's going to be a comfort that I'm going to stand firm in Christ. Because I only live this long. Eternity. It's forever. It's going to be a great encouragement to believers. It should be a great encouragement to us. We could focus on all the evil that's going on around us. And there's a lot. But that doesn't necessarily uplift us or encourage us. But we can focus on who God is. His greatness, His goodness, His power, His justice, His righteousness, His return and glory one day. That will uplift us. I think that was part of what Jesus was referring to. He said, Our Father in heaven, help me in your kingdom come, we will be done. As we pray that way, there's a confidence and a, a calmness that comes to our heart. These early believers, when they heard about the word, the justice of God's judgment would have brought confidence to them. And then lastly, the perseverance of the saints. First uh, John, I'm sorry, Revelation 1 9, John says he's a fellow sufferer. So he says, hey, I'm with you guys. I know this is going on. He writes to the seven churches and appeals to them to be overcomers. Have you ever heard that term? Be overcomers. What are they overcoming? What are they overcoming? Sin. Sin? What else? The world. The world? Domination. Satan? Persecution? Hardships? Famine? Nakedness? Sword? Everything that could be thrown at them. They're overcoming. And how do they overcome? Yes, so read Revelation 12, if you have more of you. Revelation 12, verses 11 and 12. How do believers overcome? This is useful for us today. The blood of the Lamb. Hmm? The blood of the Lamb. I want to read the whole verse, because there's actually more there. Okay? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives... To the, to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Okay? They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so somebody asks us, what does that mean? What are we going to say? What does that mean, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony? His sacrifice for us. He sacrificed for us. Okay, what about it? Uh, he gave his life. He gave his life. The blood paid the lambs. It cleansed us. The blood paid the price for us. Once for all. Who is this lamb? 
Jesus, victorious one, right? Blood of the Lamb, we're in Him. That's confidence. The word of our testimony is just, I believe, whatever God says is true. We just keep preaching the truth. We overcome because God will give victory. If persecution comes, maybe you should memorize this verse at any time. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. Okay. You know what we tend to do, though? Why we tend to think our tiny, vaporous life is going to go on forever when we're being persecuted. Yeah. So there's more than that. We, we, fit, we get a wrong perspective of persecution, right? We, we don't think it's going to happen to us because it hasn't happened to us. But when has that ever been true? Well, it hasn't happened to me, so it's not going to happen to me, right? But also, our perspective is so limited. We drove through the last national forest yesterday. We held the majesty of Mount Lassen. We're pretty insignificant. <laughs> and we live in a little small area of a really big world, right? And God's doing things in all those other places that we may not know about. And so while it may look bad in our corner, there's corners of the world that's really bright and the gospel's going forward with great power. So it's hard for me to say, is it getting worse? I don't know. It depends on your perspective. You know, the church in Africa has grown 600-fold in 100 years. And the church in China is on pace to pass the church in America within the next decade. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Depends on your perspective. So if we keep our focus on the Lord, the victorious Lamb, when we face, if we face persecution, we know that God has us. We persevere because He preserves us. And all throughout, it talks about how um, the, 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 the God will watch over and keep His people. And as they are being watched over and kept, they persevere. So they persevere because they're being preserved. It all goes back to God. We know God's in control. Then we allow ourselves to be small and God to be And we keep our focus on Him. See how this would be great encouragement to first century believers? And all believers who have been persecuted over the years. Okay, so. I pray for grandchildren, like in future, look at infants and whatnot, and their future, and it's like, I see how much has changed in my lifetime, and just trying, with no, just even thought, what could happen to them. And the consolation to me was, God's answer seemed to be, as God prepared me to live in my time, and I look at even the next generation who lives in this total technology, well, God prepared them. He didn't prepare me, but he prepared my children. Sure. And therefore, I have to, by faith, believe that believers in the future will be prepared to live in whatever his world is if they're looking. Good point, and very good observation, because... There's only one kingdom that's eternal. <laughs> History is a great teacher. Okay? So, yesterday we observed this uh, eight-ton rock that had been shot out of Mount Lassen during volcanic eruption in 1915. Eight-ton rock. Three miles. Okay? I'm going to roll a little bit. But... Okay. If God knows what he's doing and controlling an eight-ton rock shot out by one volcano, 
Because you're not going to say that it arrived in that place by accident. Right? He's got that. Can't we trust him? Does all things well? He's got all things under control. Okay? Therefore, we get in confidence. Um, yeah, I just I look at this is why it's good for us to look at what God is doing in the world because there's so many good things going on in, in places around the world. Even in the Middle East, the church is growing. And there are ministries that I'm aware of that are reaching out to Muslims, and there are a number of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. They're going to come from every tribe and language and family and nation. They're going to come. But we are just part of the proclamation team so that they can hear. Okay? How many churches are in America? <laughs> An estimation is 100,000 Protestant churches. Okay? Now, how many of those would be faithful Bible-preaching Protestant churches would be far less than 100,000? Okay? Um, because we need to look at, it's not just the name on the outside of the door, right? It's the message from the front of the church, what, what's happening. Uh, most of them are small. I think the average church size in the United States Protestant churches is about 50. But... The Lord knows. The Lord knows. And there's a lot of churches that have church on the outside and death on the inside. You know that was promised? Revelation 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to take the candlestick out. And God still does. So woe unto us if we think we can wander away from this world. But if we stay faithful to it, He is faithful to those who are faithful to Him. Okay? So, hold me to it. As the pastor, I'm preaching the word. I'll hold you to it that we're only going to sit under the instruction of the Lord. As imperfect as it may be, as imperfect as our elders and pastors are, well, we know ultimately that that's the only answer. And that's what we'll stay faithful to. Alright, so key verses. If you were able to, well, I don't know if we need to go over this because we've already talked about this. Okay, but in your notes you have the things that are unique to this book. We've talked about most of these. So let's just go on. Boy, it was hard to pick what the key verses would be. Mm-hmm. It's such a picturesque book. But I picked three. Jesus says in chapter 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I die and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So I've overcome, I'm victorious, I control even death itself, you can trust me. How that will comfort the early saints. And then, Revelation 5, 12 and 13, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and light forever and ever. Basically, what we have here is John's rendition of Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? And then I picked one more because it's such a big book. (coughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. If that doesn't get you out of bed excited about life, I don't know what else to get you with, because this is our world, and this is our future. And it's as sure that it's going to happen the fact that Christ is already risen from the dead. Amen. God will keep His word always without fail. Okay? So, looking at the main themes, looking at some of the big ideas, why is it that Christians have an agreement not to the church? Okay? And so you have a, I think you have an appendix in your notes. The different schools of thought on how to understand the book of Revelation. Good for us to at least see them. I'm not saying you don't agree with every one of them. I don't agree with every one of them. But I want to at least give a fair hearing to what they're trying to say so we can understand at least how they got there. Okay? So, the preterist view, the key point here is the third point down. And many adherents of this view say that most of the book was fulfilled by 70 AD. And what they do is they look at what's happening in the first century of the symbolism that was involved in worship of the emperor, what was going on in the Roman Empire, and they see the symbols in the New Testament, I'm sorry, the book of Revelation, and they say most of them have been fulfilled. The ones that would not be, of course, would be the victorious return of Jesus Christ. But a lot of the other ones would be seen as being fulfilled. I'm just throwing it out there. This is a view that you will see. Some will have what's called a partial prayer's view, which would say a lot of it happened before 70 AD, but there's still a lot that's future. And the key about 70 AD is there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. And when you look at the book of Revelation, where you contrast the Lamb and the beast. You contrast the sea and there is no sea. You contrast the bride of Christ and the Lord of Babylon. You contrast the new sea. Did you ever notice that it's coming down and it's described as a cube? I don't believe it's literally a cube. Okay? I think what it is is referring to something much higher and much deeper. What else was a cube in the Bible? The Holy of Holies. And I think with this, this powerful representation of earth and heaven being one, the new heavens and the new earth, is that all of creation now is always God's holy presence. And that um, it's not, he's using exact geometry to explain a, a, an eternal spiritual truth. Okay? But he was so. Uh, yeah, because he says it's real. It's going to happen, but he's trying to help communicate to them what is actually going to be. So, just kind of contemplate it. I'm, you that I'm just saying that Christians have different points of view on some of these. So, um, why can't it be? Why can't it be what? A cube. Because I think it's representing something higher than just a literal physical cube. Why? For reasons I just said. That is, it's dealing with deeper spiritual truths of how God interacts with his people. And in the Holy of Holies, God and man could not interact. 
The veil was torn away. And all of the plan of redemption now is being accomplished. And, and there's no temple. And there's no light. There's just God is with his people. And they're with their God. Isn't our mansion in this cube? That's how I see it. And, you know, you've got the description of the pearl gates. Uh, all of that has important meaning. All of it has important meaning. Built on the apostles, on the prophets, right? The 12 foundations and the 12 gates. All of that is being fulfilled in Christ. So you're saying that the cube is symbolic. I'm saying it's symbolic. It's representing that no, all of creation... It may not measure exactly that way. Fullness. It's, it's in the fullness of all of creation now... Uh, I think the old hymn says, Earth and heaven become one. That all of creation now is a holy place of God in the temple. And there's no more hindrances, there's no more division, there's no more separation. Okay? There's no part that light sticks out on its own. It's like, it, I mean, it's Every view has problems, every view has weaknesses. So that would be one of them. And what is it that's referred to as outside? Is outside like outside the gate? Or is outside like completely outside of the kingdom of God and cast out from his presence forever? That becomes part of the interpretation question. Okay? Um, so it's the restoration of all that was lost. And we believe in the heavens and the earth. So, is it a cube? We'll be happy if it is. But what if it's greater? What if, like, the land is not a literal land, and the sea is not a literal sea, but it's pointing to deeper truths? This cube is not a literal cube, but pointing to greater truths. I don't know, man. I can stand there and look at 1,500 miles cube. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it goes beyond what we can imagine. That's kind of the point. It goes beyond what we can imagine. Okay? I can imagine a cube. Yeah. I can't imagine all the creation being a temple. No. I don't think it is. It just well, gets into the issue of what do you take, literally. And, and that's the point. And, that's, and, and so there'll be scholars that'll say it must be this, and there'll be scholars that say it can't be that. And they have all their reasons, and it's like, okay, I don't know what to do with that, because there's men that I respect that have different points of view. I know what my point of view is, and if there's enough that's clear that I'll go with it. Okay? So, the next few that... Remember I told you? I didn't agree with all of them, or just, I, and I'm not telling you to agree with all of them. I'm just presenting them. Okay? The historicity view. This came out early in the Middle Ages, and it was the idea that the book of Revelation was this retelling of church history. From the time of the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And so they're trying to match up years and symbols and how many years and how many uh, decades and all of this. And it, it became a Uh, a rod in the sense that Protestants would use to beat up the Catholic Church because they said that the Pope was the Antichrist and Rome was the wicked city and they tried to time it all so that somehow it's just telling the story of projecting what's going to happen throughout all the church history. Part of the problem is that nobody agrees when to start. Because you got these numbers, right? How are we going to fit these numbers in? Um, and each generation of Christians just thought they had the insights, and so they would try to figure out how it was supposed to work. We're not immune to that. Remember in 1988, you know, this book came out, you know, 88 reasons why Christ will return in 88. Christ didn't return in 88, so he wrote another book the next year called 89 Reasons Why Christ Will Come in 89. And his first reason was, here's how I miscalculated. But Christ didn't return in 89. 
And instead of learning a lesson, he continued on for a few years, but he lost all respect because he's doing what God said we can't know. And very plainly said, yeah, nobody knows. Because Jesus, when he goes up, he, said, he, he says, he not, what, in Matthew 24, he says, you will know neither the day nor the hour, right? But in Acts 1, he says, you'll know neither the times nor the seasons. If I can't know the times or the seasons or the days or the hours, then I'm just going to be content letting God tell me when it happens. Okay? And not try to pigeonhole my scheme onto the scriptures. Okay? Which is what we're all tempted to do. Then there was what's called the idealist view. Or idealistic view. And they say, well, the book's not really intended to fit in any time, place, in history. It's just intended for all true believers of all time. So that all believers are going to deal with, as it were, the beast. They're going to deal with false worship. They're going to deal with those that are against Christ. They're going to deal with uh, struggles. And their hope is that Jesus Christ is returning one day. Okay? And then there is the last view. Futurist. Is the futurist view. And the futurist view, and even among the futurist view, there's a little division in how we're supposed to understand how it all fits together. Believes that there's part of the book of Revelation that's dealing with the first century, but at some point it moves its way into the future. And there's an understanding that there will be a literal of some sort period between this age and the age to come called the millennium. Of course, I can't always agree on what the nature of the millennium is and what it actually tends to convey. But that there's some type of a intermediate age between this age and the age to come. But that the idea is that it's talking about things not yet seen, at least in large measure. Okay? Um, and some of the early church fathers believed in this view. Among them, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus. And so, I take a view that's called historic premillennialism because it has root in history among some of the early church fathers. It expects Christ to win, it expects there to be a time of great difficulty. Um, I look at all these views and I can find truth in all of them. And I look at all of them and I can find problem areas in all of them as well. Okay? I do think a lot of things are related to the first century, the book of Revelation. Otherwise, the book doesn't make any sense to early believers. It did make sense to early believers. Probably more large than it made sense to us. But I can't accept that it all happened then. There's just too many things that are seem to be still out there in prophecy that have to be fulfilled. So there's some truth there. I can see some truth in the historic view and the idea that it wants to see that God is in control of history. And that there is, in a sense, evil going on, and God is moving people up and down, and kingdoms up and down. But I don't think the New Testament was intended to be a rubber nose, and we could just push and ply and fit to whatever scheme we want according to history. So there's some truth there. The idealist view is attractive in that it, it had, it, it's full of meaning for every generation of believers. These are the problems we're going to go through. They're symbolized by this, 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 and this. In the end, righteousness and, and justice and goodness and truth win. But I think there's not enough of history in there because God is the God of history, so that there are certain events that we anticipate still happening. The futurist view seems to be a straightforward view of the text. 
but then all of them say that. <laughs> so this was a view that I was originally trained in, so I looked at it and like, well, yeah, that seems to be the straightforward meaning of the text. Until somebody else comes along and starts to present something. It's like, oh, I didn't think about this. I didn't think about this. I forgot about that. I wasn't even aware of this. And then you start seeing plausibly. Doesn't this futurist view uh, involve the, the Jewish people? Depends on how you... What camp you're in. So the answer is yes, and then to what, what degree? But I, I think this one overall, the other one is... Uh, Gives an answer about it. Well, so for example, um, an amillennial view would be futurists in some degree because they believe in the return of Jesus Christ, so we're in the final judgment, and uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And most amillennials would say there is a, still a future reserved for Jewish people. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I don't know about postmillennial. Um, I'm not as familiar with that view. It's a view that is starting to grow in popularity among some YouTube teachers. Yeah. You may come across their name occasionally, Doug Wilson, uh, James White, um, Apologia Church in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, starting to present a pre- uh, post-millennial view. I don't know what promises they hold for the Jewish people. Most premillennial views hold some type of promise for ethnic Israel and may or may not hold a promise for national Israel. So for the people, not necessarily the place. And the books are multitude that try to explain these different positions. And uh, I'm not even sure I understand all of them. So in recent views, there have been new ones that have come up, the partial rapture theory, there are only those that are ready to go and be raptured, and the less the so-called carnal or disobedient Christians will stay and suffer for a while, and then they'll be taken up. Uh, there's the pre-wrath view, which says, well, well, the church will go through the tribulation, but only so far, and then you get just before the final trumpets and the final judgment, the church will be raptured out. So it's not a mid, it's not a mid-term, a mid-term, it's like five six of the way through. You know, I I don't know what to do with all of that. I guess I I, I I look at them, I study them, I listen to them. I got ordained in the free church because I believed in historic premillennialism. They accepted me. I'm comfortable with that position in spite of all the weaknesses I see in it. Like I see in other positions because I've read all the way to the end. And whatever the end ends up being, it's going to be far more than what we can imagine. Okay. Yes. I'm really pretty simplistic. Okay. I think I look at all of the thought when that went into, I believe, thought setting that went into the first coming of Jesus. Right. And and then it turned out to be. So God's plan was so totally different that no one had conceived it. And so if that in general is how human can't get into God's thinking, I think the second coming is going to be of of similar, like we can talk and talk or someone, but that God's going to surprise us in ways that we just, we we never would have thought. So a lot of the the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus performed that we now recognize is after the fact. So it's easier to see how it can be done. And I think that's what you're saying. There are just certain things we're grasping at straws at. 
had a good friend of mine, I have a good friend of mine, who is, is, is all millennial, who is not quite sure what, what's going to happen in this seven year period. But he said, there's one thing I'm sure of, Jesus Christ returned in glory and great power. That's what the church has always affirmed. As I have struggled with the book of Revelation, I have changed my understanding of certain things over the years because there's so much symbolism there. And all these schools of thought recognize there are things that are literal and there are things that are symbolic. So you have to define the terms carefully. What do you mean by literal? What do you mean by symbolic? Um, they just don't agree where those lines are as well. And so I just know the more I understand the Old Testament, the more I understand the Book of Revelation. Because there's so much imagery from the Old Testament. I wrote on the board 1900 allusions to the Old Testament in the Book of Revelation. The greater we understand Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, the Psalms, the minor prophets, the promises, the greater we'll understand the Book of Revelation. And I don't understand all this yet. So I've got a lot more learning to do. Um, I know what views I'm not real pleased by. Okay? And I know I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Unless you directly ask me. But, um, <laughs> asking. Okay, I'm not real fond of Calvinism. And I think the damage that he has brought to the understanding of biblical prophecy. I think that it's simplistic and misguided things that he brought into the equation has really thrown a whole generation into confusion. And he clearly said that Jesus must return by 1988. Which meant, in his view, the rapture had to happen in 1981. When it didn't happen, and he never apologized for it, but continued to insist that his way of interpretation is like, if you want a good presentation of the view that he tries to present, John MacArthur would be a much better presenter of that view. There you're going to get a very cerebral, comprehensive, respectable, and I would say responsible presentation of that view. And then even then, John MacArthur will say, I know there's errors in my theology, I just don't know where they are. But he believes in the future. What's that? John. Oh, very much. And he would be a dispensational premillennial. That's one side. He was good friends with R.C. Sproul, who was non-millennial. Yes. Total. Total. Yeah. Uh, not total, because post-millennial would be on the other end, where just believe we're going to make Earth as heaven and Jesus comes back. And sometimes preterist, by the way, too. Yeah, he, he was a semi-preterist. Yeah. He, he believed that a lot happened in the first century, but a lot didn't. Yeah. And they were good friends. Priests at the same conferences, did gospel together. Um, and they didn't pull any punches, which I thought was very no. They, they went at each other, yeah. but they kept their friendship in the in the gospel, and that's what I like. So, um, if you want to look at it, it, it so if you you got nothing better, to do, and you really want to look at a good argument, any arguments, okay? An evening on eschatology by the Piper Conference for Pastors in 2010. You got four proponents of different views, and they. They go at it with each other. But they're all intelligent brothers. They're all involved in ministry. They don't pull their punches about how they pick on different views. But they're willing to ask the tough questions and listen. And they don't come down and agree with anything. 
That one is more, a little bit, the temperature goes up in the room. We, I sat in one about four or two years ago, mm, 2020, that was only two years ago, where there was another similar panel, and the temperature of the room was dialed down quite a bit. Mm. And they even asked the question, why is it that this is a less heated conversation than it was 10 years ago? And they all said basically the same thing. We think the church has gotten a little more mature in handling these issues. Well, they realized, wait a minute, we're living in a culture that is going more and more pagan, we're living, we're surrounded, we need to preach the gospel clearly, let's define what the gospel is, let's make the main things the main things. These other things can be extracurricular activities we have around a cup of coffee, but as we face a hostile world, we must stand together. And I think that's pretty, pretty much your attitude. But if you want to, if you want to have a good animated discussion, the evening on eschatology, just look it up on the Desiring God or YouTube page, and uh, uh, you know, Rusty, I want you to monitor your blood pressure. <laughs> there's going to be a few things that are said there that you're not going to like. Okay. <laughs> so, Tom, back to your question: Why, why is it not literal? Because I'm still struggling to figure out what exactly is literal and what is symbolic, referring to absolute truth. And so I'm still, I'm still wrestling with some of those issues. And so I, whatever it ends up being is far beyond what I can imagine. And when we have a cup of coffee around the eternal throne, we say, I'm going to get away doing it. And, and I'll be okay. Because I have, I have no doubt that we're, as for all of us, we're going to be wrong about something. <laughs> You know, our theology is going to be askew somewhere. And Jesus is going to give the final correction to all of us. So where I'm sure, I'm sure. Where I'm not sure, you know, yes, Could you just explain to everyone what amillennialism is? Because he's got through that out. Well, because we talked about it last oh, week. Oh, you did? Yeah, we did that. So, never mind. But those of you that weren't here, let me give you the 45-second reader's digest version. Okay? I, so the amillennial view says that Christ is going to return in glory and great power one day. But right now, we are living in this period where church, Christ is reigning through the church. And they call that the millennium, where Christ is showing his power. But the world's going to get evil. It's going to get more evil. At one point, Jesus is going to come back. Final judgment, new heavens and new earth. Post-millennial believes, because it sees Proverbs, uh, not Proverbs, parables that talk about the, the leavening effect of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is expanding more and more throughout the world. So, for example, Africa was 5% Christian in 1900, now it's almost 50%. Okay? They expect to see that happening throughout history, where the church will become more, uh, the world will become more and more gospelized, if you will, more and more influence of the gospel, where it will be almost perfect, and then Christ will come back. So, it will be after this millennial thing, final judgment, it will have that's possible. Premillennial says there's a period of time between today and the new heavens and the new earth, and that Jesus Christ is going to return to earth, reign on the earth, fulfill final promises that are yet to be fulfilled, dole out his blessings, there'll be a final rebellion. Uh, he will have the great final judgment and cast all the wicked into hell. New heavens and the new earth. Okay, that's the 45-second version of those three main views. Most of us are probably in that last one. Okay? I did not mean this very So, When you call that last one, please. Premillennialism. Okay? Within the premillennialists, they fight about all kinds of things, and there's all kinds of divisions within that. What happens during the seven years? Uh, yeah. who, who's going up? What direction is it happening? We talked about that last week, I think. Anyway. 
The early church creed says, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will happen. That's the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says something very similar, and to that I say, Amen and Amen, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, however you do it, we will all applaud you. But if you should choose to take us out, your name be praised. If you should choose to let us go through prior persecution, or we die before we see your glorious return, let us be those who praise your name as well. But in all things, find us faithful. Right? Father, thank you for the time we've had together. Thank you that we're all in progress and in process and be patient with us. But thank you for the hope, the hope that we have, the glorious return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live faithfully today in light of that day for your glory in our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No. Let's play this.